0: Just a quick note there are descriptions of violence in this episode that some listeners may find upsetting. You're listening to Resident, Rehivasi, Kazi, Banor, Al Residente. A 10 part series exploring individual perspectives on the immigrant experience in Ireland and the personal histories that led them here. This is episode 9, David
1: This is David. I was born in England, raised in Nigeria. Left when I was 17, living in Ireland for about, I think, 16, 18 years now. Growing up, all I knew was my mom, brother and sister, till I was about, I think, 9 or 10 or something. Um, The dad was never there. Dad is Lebanese, by the way. Mom is um, Nigerian, so... We lived in um, Nigeria in the north. It was very, um, very isolated. There were houses there, but it was so quiet. It was built by the uh, military base. We had a huge mango plantation. It was like, imagine O'Connell Street twice that size, twice the length, just mangoes. And imagine O'Connell Street twice again and just guavas. You could go three, four hours without seeing another human being. Like there were houses next to you. But it was so quiet. I remember vividly, it's the same routine for me. I just get out, sit on the rocks in front of the house, and I just stare. My mom would be away, and I would sit down on the rock. And it can be like three hours or a few hours before you even see one person. When people say, what was your childhood like? It was... It was quite empty, very empty. It was just nature. You know, you could smell the grass. You could feel the hot sand in between your toes. You could build a little sand house for the ants. You know, you you understood creatures, you know. All these things, but there was no future there where I was as a kid because the schools there were like, really expensive and they were mostly private so it was the army generals the captain the colonels the sergeants. those were the ones that could afford to send their children to private boarding schools my source of escape was cartoons it was like tv and it was like movies you know it was like Power Rangers, Swat Cat and Top Cat. And then I'll be watching movies with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris. And it's like, my brain started to just come alive. One particular film that stuck with me and I think is gonna stick with me forever is a movie called The Never Ending Story. There was this particular scene where the boy was going on his journey, but the horse he was going with got stuck in sinking sand and i still remember vividly and he just kept he just kept pulling he was like come on come on and the like, hustler, mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> basically saying just go on and boy was like no no and i start, <laughs> like if i think about it like i could cry right now <laughs> oh man that film i watched that film i think like a thousand times my imagination started running when I, when I started watching movies and I find myself acting out those characters or learning certain lines and all of these things were happening without my mom or brother or sister knowing. It was just me because it, it was as a um, Nigerian watching Hollywood movies. It's an elusive as like a mirage. All those movies I watched, that stuck with me. But I never really told anyone that, you know what, I really like doing this. When we left to the big city, it was going from a, from a town of maybe like 500 people to like a city of almost 50 million. My, my mind was racing when I went to Lagos. It was tough. It, it was a huge change. It was a huge change, but it was a change that... Introduced me to the madness of the world. But I think I kind of like tried to become someone else. I found myself like doing things like smoking weed, drinking. Like nobody in my family smokes. Nobody drinks. Everyone in my family is so bloody healthy. But funny enough, like I started to believe the lie myself that I was this, you know, like. I was out there, but I really wasn't because it, it actually wasn't me. Lagos was hard. Things I saw just made no sense. Like, man, I remember once, my God, like, woof, a group of people were chasing one guy down the street. And eventually, they caught him. As they caught him, they started beating this guy. They beat this guy so much he was gasping for air. I, would, I can never forget the sound in my life. He just kept doing this. He was trying to get air in, but it was hard. It eventually, they took a tire, two tires. They put it on him, poured petrol on him and they lit him on fire. As a kid, you like seeing this and you're like, man, what did this guy do? They were like, ah, oh, he stole. I was like what did he steal uh he stole bread from a marketplace and as i'm looking my brain is shifting it's just drifting back and forth i don't man uh like when like for me it's like in ireland when people say oh life is tough you know uh, it's it's tough it's hard i'm like what the hell is hard man like what the hell is hard down here homeboy you got a roof over your head you have electricity If you want to have a shower, you go in the bloody shower. There's hot water there, you know? When it's cold outside, you go into your place, you put on the heat and it's there. Tough, like, what what is that? My mentality has changed. But I used to be like that where I'm like, man, if you don't move from my face, do not piss me off, just move. Don't ask me for even, don't ask me for nothing. I have nothing for you. Everywhere that me and my brother went to, we stood out. We were the light-skinned guys because of my dad, who's actually pale white. There was a name they called them in Nigeria. They called him um, Onyibo. It means basically white, like white person. And there was like rituals in Nigeria where they would like kidnap someone and they want to offer them to the gods. If you are lighter skin or if you are like um, albino, those are the ones that God would like reward the most. So there was always that fear of like, you can't go out at a certain time. We don't have money to pay for security to protect these guys. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of mixed race guys in Nigeria, but eventually someone will fall victim and you don't want to be that victim. So that fear was always there. Like the number one key factor of leaving was the fear factor. And there was no money for a decent education because there is no middle class. It's either you're at the top or you're dying at the bottom. But it was the safety was the number one factor. So yeah, that's why we just we just left. I remember being uh, picked up by, I don't know, it was a complete stranger. It's like, oh, um, I'm a friend of your mom's. I'm here to take you to like a better place. It, it, was, it, it, it was odd to go with like a stranger, but there are certain things that the stranger was saying that you know for a fact that if this person was a was a complete stranger, they would not know certain things. Like where you lived as a child, the trees that were there, you know. And you know, okay, this is not just a stranger. This is someone that obviously was there maybe when I was a child and I didn't know. So I left with that person. I was asking a woman, what about my brother and my sister? They were like, oh, they've been taken care of as well, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, cool, no problem. From there, we went home, packed the bags, went to the airport, went to England. On getting to England, we landed got the bags and the person just told me, oh, hold on, I need to go to the toilet quickly. I said, okay, let me, let me wait here. And I waited there for a long time. That person was just, and then eventually someone with like a um, high vest came to me like, uh, you've been here for a while. I was like, no, I'm actually waiting for someone. They were like, yeah, but you've been here for about three hours waiting for the same person. Do you want to come into the room? I was like, no, I don't want to go into the room. If I go into the room, the person shows up. If I'm not here, they were like, okay, they're going to wait there with me. So they waited there for like another hour. And that realization that the person was not coming back. I was like, okay. So they took me in and I was 17 then. So basically they took me there, offered me a sandwich, offered me Coke. And they were like, do you know anyone in Nigeria now? I was like, literally no one. Because my mom, she hasn't been in the house for God knows how long. I don't know what happened to her. And the lady said, would you like to claim asylum? I was like, what's that? And they were like, "Um, we would offer you safety, blah, blah. I was like, no, I I don't need it. I have someone with me. I'm just waiting for the person. They were like, the person most likely is not coming back. Then, you know, as a kid, you start to cry and, you know, you're in a country you don't know. Everyone is white. It's like nobody looks like me. Nobody sounds like me. They're talking like they're singing, you know, and it's... I broke down, crying, really depressed. And then they told me that the next step is to claim asylum, which I did. Then they took me to a home. Funny enough, there were small things that you appreciate. Like I remember they gave me like a room to stay in and it was just a bed, a table and a chair and a shower and a toilet. But my God, it was so clean. I kept playing with the switch. I kept, (laughs) because it was like, there was light, you know, and in Nigeria, when we get light, we probably get like twice a week or once a week and it's very low current where it's very dimmed. I remember, and I kept going into the room, turning it on, turning it back on, turning it on, turning it back on, and I flushed the toilet a few, few times, and like I ran the shower a few times. Like I was like, man, this is the life, you know, like, and that was taking my mind away from the person leaving me there and everything. They gave me um a lawyer which I could go to the office. And I I think after like a few months, like the lawyer contacted me to come to the office and say like, they have reviewed your case and you're going to be deported. And then I'm looking like, deported? There's no home to go to? I don't know where my brother, my sister, my mom is? I was like, no, no, I'm not. And the lawyer was like, we we can appeal. And we appeal, we lost. We appeal again, we lost. I was like, okay, I get the point. So I left England, came to Ireland. I remember like coming here and knowing that if I was to claim here, that people were already telling us that the UK and Ireland are sharing details. I'm like, okay. So I was thinking, what am I going to do? So it was the only thing that popped in my head. I might just fiddle with my fingertips. So I started to bite, bite them a bit. I, I, I didn't really... Realize that like the palm is <laughs> it, so tough. It's so tough and like it was it was so bad. It really hurt like hell. And when I did like the um fingerprint in Ireland, I'll never forget. She was like, you fiddled with your fingertips. I was like, no, 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 I've not. She was like, let me show you. This is what people's fingerprints are like, or yours is patchy and sketchy. She was like, the only way is because you feel it with your fingers. Do you want to show me your fingers? I was like, no, no, I'm okay. She was like, you actually, it's not a choice. Showed her the fingers. She was like, okay, have a seat. She was like, okay, tell me your story. Then I opened up. I broke down. Man, I remember this lady was like, I can't promise you anything. The only thing I can promise you is that we are going to review your case. Knowing that no mom, no dad, you don't know where your brother, sister is. You don't know if your mom is alive, anyone. I can't guarantee if the kid's going to be successful or not, but what we can do in the meantime, we're going to give you a place to stay. We're going to make you safe. And I was like, okay. Back then, I could not work, but they put a roof over your head. They fed you three times a day. Everything was like supplied. But where we were in Ireland, where they took us to, at night, sometimes it, it wasn't really nice. Especially when you hear cries of like people that they have decided that, okay, your case is now dismissed and you are going to be deported. If you have to go back, they come at night. And they always bring a van. So at night when they come, there's really nowhere to go. Knowing this, we could never really have a good night's sleep. Because if they come into the room, you know that's it. And all the rooms were just, the walls were thin. And this one particular night, you could just hear it. When they came down, and they were saying, the Minister of Justice has decided that you will be safe in the country. They're going to send you back, blah, blah, and you don't have any ground, blah, blah. This woman was crying so bad, and she was fighting. And this cry, man, this cry just made me decide that, you know what, Mm -mm. I'm not doing this anymore. So one day, um, I basically went into town. I met up with Nigerians, explained to them, told them what I heard. They were like, man, we understand. A few of us, we've left the hostel too because, like, the deportation. If they're coming to the room, that's it. So from there, the journey kind of took off from, from there again, yeah. I stayed in Cork for a while, and I love Cork. In Cork, when you're driving from one town to the other it's like it's just trees and grass and trees and fields and I love that so much for me I really loved it but but something happened in Cork um was driving women issues and then was thinking so much about the about like about the breakup and I didn't realize that I was speeding and then The car was turning the corner. I saw another car coming. So the moment I saw another car coming, I realized that, God, I'm going at a very high speed. So when I slammed the brake, the back tire literally just lifted up and it went blah, blah, blah. And the car flipped over like twice, landed. I literally came out. I had nothing wrong with me except for there was a cut at the back of my elbow. The top of the car was dented except for where my head was. And I remember I, w- I was in the ambulance and this old man in the ambulance was like, listen, I've been doing this for about 30 years. I've seen a lot of car crash. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want to do. But he was like, I feel like God has given you a second chance. You need to do something with your life. I was like, ah. So then I left, I kept thinking about it. It's like, man, I've always wanted to be an actor. And I've never told a soul in my entire life Something switched in my head. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this. But what happened one day was, the address I was now staying now, there was a guy downstairs that the police came into him. When they came into the house, they kind of like arrested everyone. And as they arrested everyone, they were going for the interview, they let them go. Going to the interview, let them go. I went into the interview thinking, ah, because... I'm not really involved with the guy, whatever he was doing. I have no idea what he was doing, but whatever he was doing, I'm not really involved in it. So I'm going to go with me and my friends that came there. And they were like, we just checked your name on the system and you're due for deportation, blah, blah. So so it was from there to Cork Prison. Stayed in Cork Prison for about like like a week. From Cork Prison straight down to the airport in handcuffs. From there, went to London. In London, they gave me a letter to come sign at some, I don't even know what the place is. The first time I was going, I was in the taxi. And like this taxi driver was like, where are you going on this street? I was like, I'm actually going to this place to go sign because um, they reviewed my case. And I remember him specifically saying this. He was like, don't go there to sign again. Wherever you came from, go back there. I've always had these encounters in my life. I can't experience, maybe it's a higher power, a higher force. I can't experience, I, I, I can't a, a, a explain it. And, and this guy was like, man, if you go sign today, you will get a letter saying come back, but don't go back, go back to where you came from. And I just decided, man, I'm going to listen. Because for me, it's like going back to Nigeria was not an option. I made up my mind that I am not going back. So sometimes in life, you have to do what you've never done in order to get what you've never had. So I basically just left. I went through Belfast, came back to Ireland. So I came back here in a car, hiding underneath, traveling bags and duvets, sneaking into Cork from Cork, taking a night coach down to Dublin. Met a lawyer, explained my case to the lawyer. And the lawyer basically told me, listen, Your case is not easy, but we're going to fight it. Then the lawyer now legally put me in the system. So I was in the system with my PPS number, with my name and everything like that. So it's now the process of revoking my deportation to basically like to give me my papers. But she was like, while we're fighting it, you have to lay low. That process was very humbling. Squatting from friends to friends and then eventually they start kicking you out (laughs) And it was just like me and my black bag. It's like, hey buddy, can I stay with you for a week? And they were like, yeah, come in. It's very, very humbling, very humbling, especially when it gets cold and you're sleeping in a factory. And it was through the process of facing the uh, deportation in Ireland and going struggle and going homeless and everything that, um, that I was auditioning for drama school. So, I I auditioned with um, Drama School, Trinity. And when I got there, they were like, you need Shakespeare, you need contemporary. In my head, I'm like, what the hell is... It was like a foreign language. I I, I didn't even know there was anything called stage acting. I, I, I thought it was just like movies, you know? And then they kind of broke it down to me what Shakespeare was, what contemporary meant, what an audition means. I was like, ah... But eventually, yeah, eventually got in. But when I got in, they were like, now we need your legal papers. I was like, listen, there's some things going on right now that you can't, you know, if you just let your homeboy slide, you know, (laughs) they were like, we can't do that, buddy. You got to be legal to like study here. And they were like, but you know what? When you get your paper, come back and audition again. And what happened one day was I went into um, immigration to go sign in. And when you give them the papers, they come out with fresh printed papers. Your next signing date is next month, next month, next month. And they were like, David. And I saw that it was the same paper that I gave him. He came out with, it was like, your deportation has been canceled. You can come back next weekend, get your papers, blah, blah, blah. After that, let's say I got it on Monday. On Wednesday, I got an email from Trinity College saying, um, we just want to know how you are with your thing. I was like, you won't believe this, I'm actually sorted. They were like, brilliant, come in, blah, 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 to audition. So my deportation being canceled, me getting my papers, me being accepted into Trinity, my fees for Trinity being paid, me finding a place, not going homeless. Everything happened within four weeks. Within a month, my life changed. So I started a course, which was very fun. I was introduced to different methods that I never even knew existed in my life. I remember like, they were like, oh, you're not breathing right. You know, you're like the words at the end of the sentence are dropping. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not breathing like? Like I'm 20 something. I've been breathing my whole life. And they were like, no, no, you know, you use your diaphragm. I was like, what are you talking about? So I was introduced to to those kind of methods, which was very um, interesting, very straining, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I wouldn't change it for anything. And also Trinity College helped me as well, because I was introduced to counseling, which was, it was a blessing in my life. That was the groundbreaker for me, because I kind of like realized that trauma stays with you But it doesn't stay with you in a way where you think about it on a daily basis. But it's sitting there. It's boiling. So if I get into a certain situation and I feel like I'm not being heard, if they're rude, that boiling volcano that that is inside, that is sitting, erupts. And I bark. I bark and I bark loud. Loud. I now have the understanding that the reason I bark loud is because as a child, I know that I would not be heard. So I'm approaching the situation as the child that I am trying to protect. There's, there's a lot of acceptance now within me through counseling. It's played a major part and it's still playing a major part because I know it's a process that cannot be rushed. So I'm basically just... Taking my time. And through counseling, I realized there is not just black and white. There are gray areas in between. And those gray areas determine how the whiteness is going to be bright and how the darkness, how dark it is. But the gray areas are the most important part because that's where the darkness and the light comes from. I realise that here. I see the gray area now. I'm receiving my Irish passport in um, October. So yeah, this is home for me. I, I, I think what makes home is um it's the small things. Like for me, and and this is odd when I actually say this. You know the ladies on Moore Street? There's a strawberry for euros, love for this, you know, fresh bananas for one euro, love yarl we there. That's home for me. Like it reminds me of Nigeria, where the street food and the flies are there, and they dusting the flies off. Like the small things that, that I can say, okay, it reminds me of Nigeria, an island combined. Like the ladies on Moore Street. If I feel sad, I just go there. For me, like I like to bargain things. You know, if the banana is like one fifty for eight bunch, I'm like, okay, if you take one out, that'll be seven bananas. Can I get one euro for it? Like those things, I'm like, ah. Uh, and, and they kind of curse you. I'd be like, oh, you're, you're a bit of a cheeky fucker, aren't you? <laughs> i am be like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just broke. they are like, here, yeah, i just take the whole eight for one year olds. Those things for me is home. And I've experienced this now for almost 18 years. You know, so for me, it's like, I don't know anything else. Like, I became a man in Ireland. I understand the essence of hard work. I understand the essence of like, yes, work hard. but just have a bit of a banter, like, you know what I mean? Just chill, chill out, like you know. It's like no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how bad it is in Ireland, it's all ah, it's all right, it's all right, You know what I mean? It's all the right. way. Do, do you want to have a point? Like there's always that thing where it's never as serious as you think it is, and I don't know if I can get this anywhere else. So this is home for me. I don't, I don't know anywhere else. I don't. There's no plan or no. Th- this is this is it for me.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been a Bearprint Media production, produced by Bjorn McGilla and me, Rob Flynn. Edit and mixed by me, with original music by Haku Yo of Sonic Gate Studios. Special thanks to all our contributors for making this series possible. This series was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the Television Licence Fee. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Thanks very much for your support.